This is Before the Light Goes Out with Catherine Williams. Claire Shaw is a poet and author. Her first two collections were published by Blood Axe and her poetry has been described by The Times as fierce, memorable and visceral. She is the co-director of Kendall Poetry Festival as well as a regular tutor for the writing project Wordsworth Grasmere and Arvon Foundation. She co-wrote and presented Four Ways to Weather the Storm for BBC Radio 4. Welcome, Claire Shaw. Thank you very much, Catherine Williams. Um, I'm just going to leap in straight away and say my first three collections were published with Blood Axe and the fourth is due out in May. Oh, well, that's even better, because if I made a mistake, that means that you can plug the new one. <laughs> exactly. So, how did you sleep last night? I slept really well last night. I slept really well, and that's not that usual for me. So I really appreciate the question. I went to bed at midnight, that's early for me, and I slept all the way through till about half seven, and I woke up feeling refreshed. Hallelujah. <laughs> and it's not been like that recently. It's not been like that since I was about 15, Catherine. But I am sleeping better at the moment. And that is, it's surprising and it's new and it's almost puzzling to me and, and a little bit disorientating because lack of sleep and sleep deprivation have been something that I've lived with for an awful long time. And I'm kind of having to get used to a new version of myself who is somebody who seeks and enjoys and experiences decent sleep. So where are you sleeping tonight? In my lovely double bed in my house. I've been given the gift, the gift uh, of a heated over blanket by my closest oldest friend who's been around my sleep problems for a long time uh, and has been encouraging me to get a heated over blanket for a long while. And I held off because I have this really troubled relationship with sleep. So I'm like, no, I won't do that. That might be too helpful. <laughs> um, so eventually she bought me one for my birthday and I started using it. Yeah, along with, you know, I assume changes at a much deeper level of me. The heated over blanket. Yeah, it's been a game changer or it's been part of a changing of my sleep game. Does it send you to sleep, the warmth? Yeah, yeah. It's that simple. And I think things have been really difficult for me recently. And one of the extraordinary things, I just went for a little walk with a friend and that's part of the picture. I've noticed that just doing small things that make me happy or that are about investing in my own comfort, they actually make a difference. Who knew? <laughs> well, most of the world, but I didn't <laughs> believe it to be true until I tried it. Small walks with friends, they're a nice thing. And nice things make you feel nice. Or heated over blankets feel like a little bit like being held. And the heat makes you drowsy. And that helps you to get to sleep. Oh my God, what a revelation. I have a friend, Sarah, and we've started meeting. We book what we call a holiday where we go for a walk and we take a picnic and we make it feel like it's a whole week. Yeah, small things. The joy of small things. With the strangeness of the world at the moment, we have to remember 
that we're allowed to feel joy of small things, to not feel guilty for it. It's almost a political act, isn't it? To have hope and joy. Yeah, yeah, it runs um, against the vein. And for me, realising that there doesn't have to be a product, there doesn't have to be an outcome of a meeting, getting together with somebody can just be because it's nice. Yeah, transformative. Where's the strangest place you've ever slept? God! The strangest place? Oh my goodness me. There's a couple that, that leap into my mind. I'm just at the moment booking a, a sleepover in a haunted house in Pontefract. That might end up being one of the strangest places where you sleep in a, a row with a line of strangers waiting to see if the poltergeist emerges. So I might be adding that to the list. For me, actually, the fact that I will sleep in a row with a line of strangers is probably even stranger than the poltergeist because sharing a room for me is an absolute no-no. But other than that, the other example that leaps into my mind is sleeping in my little tent in the ruins of a castle in Spain on a climbing holiday. And it was so hot and I'd accidentally taken a really hot sleeping bag and I was sleeping on my thermorest, which was really slippy. During the night, I slid completely out of the tent and ended up in a pile in the castle. That leapt into mind. And also the overnight train to Granada. But that maybe verges into the nicest place that I've ever slept, which maybe is another question. Were you going to ask me where's the nicest place? That would be the nicest place. I'm definitely going to put that into my questions from now on. I've never heard of this train. What? Tell me about oh, it. Oh, it was fantastic. It was quite a few years ago. It was when I just, I was in the first months of a, a relationship in the happy honeymoon. I was away for quite a long time climbing and this woman was going to be at the bottom end of Spain. I was up in Barcelona. So we arranged to meet in Granada that was like halfway. And, and I'd never been and I really wanted to go. Uh, and I was meeting this woman and everything was all hope and excitement. And the only way of getting there, I had to book a train last moment. And it was like super, super duper first class. So I got my own like ensuite bathroom and my own room with a chocolate on the bed before I went to bed and, and a three-course dinner. And, and they, they met me asking me if I wanted champagne with my dinner. Yes, I do want champagne with my dinner. Thank you very much. And, you know, I got about an hour's sleep, but that was OK because I was so happy I cried to travel through Spain and, and to see those stations you know, to, to, to hear Spain going by in the dark and then to watch the sun coming up. We were travelling through the desert and to pass through all these stations that I knew I'd never see again. And all these places, all these dreams of, oh, I could get off here and just walk out into the desert. I think it was one of the, the most dreamlike exquisite experiences of my life, that sleeper train. And I've always intended to travel on a sleeper train since and, and never done it. I've looked at sleeper trains in the UK, but I don't think it would be quite the same thing. But that's definitely there on my, my itinerary of things that I want to do in the rest of my life, is, is travel on a really posh sleeper train again. Oh, yeah. The anonymity and the kind of rhythm of, of, of travel is something that just really matches sleep, I think. So sleeping in a cabin in a ferry, again, I don't sleep well. 
but the experience of having my own little room, the kind of throb of the engines as you're lying in your bed and knowing that you're travelling through the world as you sleep is, is just a perfect experience for me. Mm. Well, my next question was, can you sleep anywhere? No. <laughs> no, I cannot sleep anywhere. I am not a good sleeper. Kind of since my teenage years, I almost made a conscious decision to stop sleeping. And I have a very complicated, troubled relationship with sleep. I don't like lying awake in bed. So usually I'll choose to go to bed when I'm absolutely exhausted. And I'm a very high energy person. So absolute exhaustion doesn't kick in until, you know, two or three in the morning. And I kind of quite embrace the state of sleep deprivation that kind of slightly dissociated high feeling of, of being very, very deprived of sleep. And of course, that's got embedded at, at the level of habit. I don't switch off easily. So, you know, overnight. Oh, yeah, that's another one. Sleeping on the overnight plane to, to Mumbai was also a perfect experience. Waking up in the middle of the night, looking down and literally seeing a desert beneath me and these little lights of tiny isolated villages. That's really embedded in my mind. Usually, no matter how long I've travelled or, or how desperate I am to get to sleep, I cannot just sleep anywhere. There needs to be a very particular set of circumstances for me to feel like it's, it's safe, safe enough to switch off. I'm often on, on high alert, um, so I need my, my sense of safety to be able to take that step into the, the kind of vulnerability and, and, and lack of control of being asleep. So do you prefer sleeping alone or with someone? I sleep loads better when I sleep with a trusted partner. Loads better. It, it completely regulates my sleep patterns, sleeping with a trusted partner. I noticed that because, you know, for large chunks of my life, I've been in, you know, long-term monogamous relationships. And whenever my partner was away, my sleep habits would go haywire. And I thought, oh my God, I'm like a, I'm like a child. You know, as soon as, as soon as my girlfriend's out the house, you know, I'm up, I'm up all hours of the night and I'm racing around the house in a state of really high excitement and agitation. I'm like Kevin on Home Alone. It's, it's again, it's something about regulation and it's something about being able to, to let go. So, yeah, in general, I sleep much better with a partner, but I absolutely cannot share the room with anybody else who is not a trusted partner. I'm not somebody that can, I could never share a bed with someone that I, I wasn't in a long term trusting relationship with. And I can't even do twin rooms, let alone dormitories. That, that's just a disaster for me. That, that completely disrupts my sleep. I'm with you 100%. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I can't imagine how people do it. And like long haul flights, when you're looking around the plane going, everybody is asleep and I am exhausted, but I just cannot flick that switch in my head that says go to sleep. It just won't happen. Whenever I tutor at an Arvon and I see that people, they can pay less for a shared room, there is no amount of discount that would make me share a room. I was just looking at that. I was looking at Arvons and looking at... It's like an £80 reduction, isn't it? And I was thinking for me to do that, it'd have to be like a £500 reduction because the impact yeah. on my week would be so big. So spoon, cuddle or space? All of the above. 
my huge ah my sleep position very much reflects my mind state i'm now 49 and when i share a bed with somebody it's always a woman who's usually of the same age group so menopause and nightly hot sweats are an issue which translates itself into space uh, but usually in a again you know in a trusting long term relationship tangled yeah so yeah tangled now i'm going to have to put spoon cuddle space or tangled yeah you know that kind of the the limbs are my limbs are very long the kind of flinging around of limbs and that finding of you know the very particular pattern because with spoon it's really hard to know what to do with the arm that's underneath so you start off spooning but then the arm goes dead and likewise cuddle it's really nice when someone's head is on your arm but unless you get it just in that gap on the edge of the pillow before their shoulder you get the dead arm so you can do a bit of spooning a bit of cuddling but eventually it's really nice when you've moved out of that with your you know pins and needles and dead limbs that you sort of tangle the legs and tangle the arms and and that feels just kind of natural you find you find like your own personal complicated knot that's a nice place that's a new way of tying the knot. Yeah, yeah. So what keeps you awake? Fear. What keeps me awake is fear. It's very rarely the state of the world that I can keep at some distance, uh, disturbing as it is. But it's about a free floating fear, which obviously for me has been around for, for, for decades. And, you know, as I say, I'm a very high energy person. And a lot of that has been about kind of channeling my anxieties into energy and kind of using them almost as my superpower, this unstoppable, relentless energy. But it does become problematic when it's when it comes to sleep. So for me, it's often fear at this kind of deep existential level that in terms of relationships, for example, I'm just kind of generally anxious and it will often be deep personal worries, you know, that are about my daughter. Have I said or done the right thing around my parenting or, you know, if I'm in a relationship, you know, what's going wrong, what might go wrong, what doesn't feel comfortable. They're the things that keep me awake. Or if I'm not writing, if I'm not writing, that can keep me awake as well. Oh my God, I'm a poet who hasn't written for a year. You know, that's, that's terrible and I can get in a cold sweat about that. That can keep me awake too. What about writing when you do write and work? Do you work better in the day or the night? And has that changed over the years? Yeah, it's changed over the years. It used to be night time. It used to be night time. It's really changed since I had my daughter and they're 14 now. I've learned that you work in the gaps where you can work, but it took me a while to learn that. I really love, and again, this plays havoc with my sleep, but I do really love those times of the day when nobody else is around. I love the sense of specialness. There's almost something kind of... There's a club membership about being an insomniac that becomes almost part of your identity. And looking out of the window, you know, when I lived in town and seeing every house apart from sort of two are dark and there's me and these two other lights. We're still up. We're the special ones. Stepping outside onto the street for a fag and, and it being utterly deserted. I am the only person awake. And likewise, you know, early morning feels like, like that kind of space. And there's an element to it of, of being online, 
you know, being on Facebook and seeing that there's other insomniacs and, you know, we've been awake at two and we're still awake at half four and a sense of us kind of belonging to each other, a kind of family. I kind of really like that space feels quite, quite creative. But I have learned over the years that it's entirely possible to create a space, to seize the space of writing in much, much less special uh, circumstances, writing in the mid-afternoon and, and having the kind of discipline and structure that makes that possible, that has shifted. And maybe that's part of why I'm, I'm able to sleep a little better now. That's really interesting. I'm the same. I used to always work at night and now it's sort of shifted more to the mornings or the times when people aren't in the house. It's that same sacred alone time where you feel like you're not being watched. Yeah, there's got to be something special about it. It's not just about lack of distraction. That's true. But, you know, even having my own room in a busy house isn't enough. It's got to be a special space. And that can happen like on a train or in. A, I really like places of anonymous travel. So a train when I'm on my own or a hotel room when I'm on my own or a service station. I really like places of, of passing through. So there can be lots of people in them, but because I'm I'm on my own within that, that level of distraction is actually quite enabling because it can take away from the, the sometimes overwhelming intensity of just me and the page or me and the screen. So yeah, I quite enjoy the slight disruption of, of background company and background noise, but it can't be people that I know. That's too invasive. With touring and you go to a hotel and each night where you've been gets like cleaned away, there's a sort of ghost-like anonymity about it where you're not a solid state, you know, you're just passing through other people's lives. And I often find that when I come in the tour bus on a Saturday to a town and I look out the window as I'm going to a venue and I see the families and the routine and they're in their local area and they don't notice me and it does just feel so ghost-like. I quite like being a ghost. Yeah, I love that notion that it's like being a ghost. It is. Yeah, it is. It's the you're there and you're not there and you leave no trace and kind of seizing that, that in-between space all as your own. It feels like a very exciting space to me, a very, a very kind of permissive space. But again, not particularly conducive to sleep. You know, I'm back to the, it gives yeah. me an energy, which is not, does, not compatible with sleepiness. So when you get to your bedroom, do you have any like rules with like phones or do you like quiet or noise, book, radio, music, podcast? What's your sort of go to? It is now podcast. It always used to be books. It's really, really changed. And it changed um, when my mum died. So my mum died three years ago and, and it was, a, you know, all death is difficult, but this was a particularly difficult death with very difficult processes happening around it. And I lost the ability to read and the ability to read stayed away for a long time. But I did discover audiobooks at the time and they were just such a gift, you know, that I could set them for 20 minutes and listen and that could take me into a different space and then they'd switch off. And when we went into the pandemic, you know, it had a similar effect. So after my mum died, I experienced a lot of migraines. I still couldn't read. We went into the pandemic and the you know, the extraordinary confusion and fear of that, 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 that time. I still couldn't read and I was staying up very, very late and drinking so that I could sleep. 
But then I discovered podcasts and, and, and I don't even, you know, I don't even set them for a time. I'll just have them on, you know, and I'll wake up hours later, several episodes down the line and have drifted off to the podcast. The podcast is an absolute godsend for me. Yeah, me too. I'm addicted. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm ridiculous. I've got so many podcasts on the go. I love them. Yeah. If you're doing all of this stuff with ghosts, have you listened to all of that uncanny? I sure have. <laughs> yes, I sure have. That's my number one. I love uncanny. And now working my way through 200 episodes of Unexplained. Yeah, just anything I can get my mitts on that, that relates to paranormal, um, supernatural. Uh, because, yeah, I'm completely, I've always been fascinated in the supernatural. And again, you know, maybe that plays some role in my difficulties uh, with sleep. The houses that I grew up in were, were haunted and however I frame that and my kind of narrative frameworks for that shift all the time in surprising directions, I was used to being afraid. I was always used to being afraid. Nighttime was particularly frightening. Yeah, maybe unsurprising that I chose to stay awake until I could just drop off in a state of exhaustion. Yeah. Gosh. Chuck that one in there. <laughs> this is my last question for you now. Can you remember a book or a lullaby or song that sent you to sleep? Yeah. In my 20s, I had some really severe mental health problems through my 20s when I lived in, in Liverpool. And back in the days of cassette tapes, and it was medieval choral singing. And that was my guaranteed go to sleep song for a long time the only song that I can remember on it was Gaudi Tay and I really loved that one because it had um, such a evocative kind of exciting uh, rhythm so I used to kind of wait out for it it's it's choral music strangely because I don't listen to that generally at any other time of the day Maybe because I associate it a little bit with my mum, because she also listens to choral music. But it just sort of, those songs drifted me, drifted me off to sleep. And in fact, I was sorting out my stack of cassette tapes recently, and I couldn't get rid of that one. I've not listened to it for maybe 20 years, and I don't think I really want to, because it would probably evoke some, some quite dark memories. But I still couldn't get rid of it. It was an important way to sleep. And when I was younger, it was it was Kate Bush when I was 15, 16. And then I could just drift off into this kind of dream world, this kind of magical dream world. And, and, and I remember very vividly, even as we're speaking, vividly drifting off when I first discovered Kate Bush. Wow, what a discovery that was. Drifting off to Wuthering Heights. And, and feeling like I was flying uh, over the moors. And that was, you know, part of a kind of long, lifelong relationship with, with, with the Howarth Moors, which I now, I am, right now as we speak, I'm looking at, because I bought a house that looks out onto the Howarth Moors. My biggest book uh, growing up was Wuthering Heights. I read it over and over again. Good on you. And it was entirely based on the Kate Bush song. <laughs> Inspired by Kate Bush's song. That's true. True fact. Did you ever sing to your daughter? Neve had really severe asthma when she was little. So again, bedtimes were really difficult. 
she was in and out of hospital a lot for her early years with her, her asthma. And it went undiagnosed for a long time because it didn't present itself uh, in the usual kind of wheezing ways. So often I'd have to sleep sat up with her, resting on me. So it wasn't a time where there was there was kind of singing or, or stories. Although we did have that, you know, we did have a book at bedtime. It wasn't generally the kind of restful musical storytelling time that you might imagine. In fact, that's happened more in her kind of later years. I I say her, I should say they, because that's how how they identify now. They were much more likely. In fact, Neve used to ask me for a story and ask me to make up a story. And I'd really, really, really struggle. And I get performance anxiety because I'm a poet, not a not a story writer. What we would do instead is I would tell her about a particular experience in real detail, which is more like poetry, and that would help them to kind of drift off to sleep. But yeah, that's, again, that's not a straightforward answer, is it? No, I would read this story and Neve would drift off to sleep or I'd sing this song. They were quite troubled times getting Neve off to sleep as a, as a tiny, tiny kid trying to go to sleep with, you know, sitting up with a child leaning against me. There were times of great sleep deprivation. It reminds me of of taking Neve into hospital one time, you know, again with another really severe episode, and just thinking, I just cannot stay awake. It's not possible. And of course, I had to, because that was just, that was just the way that it was. You know, so I did learn the interior of sleep deprivation in a in a really extreme way during those years. Well, maybe they're just following on, like carrying the torch of, of the family no sleep banner. Well, you do you know what, Catherine? It's it's entirely possible because that you know it's also very true of my siblings. Um, I don't have, you know, I have very, very limited contact with Molly now, but it was a feature and it was almost a sign of strength amongst the siblings. Like, how little sleep did you have last night? So all my sisters were nurses and they worked night shifts and then worked during the day and be awake with their kids. And one of my sisters had, and and my brothers had, had kids with lots and lots of special needs. So their sleep was really limited by that. And it was almost like a badge of honour. You know, I've only had two hours sleep and look at me still working and still alert. So I think there is something that passes down through the generations. And, you know, it's not a great thought to think that I, I might pass that to my daughter. I don't think I am. I I think I see my daughter sleeping fairly well. Fingers crossed, you know, I'm seeing my own relationship with sleep finally at long last beginning to shift. Yeah, that's fantastic news. And also... You can tell your siblings, look, I spent half of my life struggling with no sleep and look at these amazing poems I've written. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. In fact, and there is one in in the forthcoming book, which will be published in May, there there is one that is exactly about a troubled relationship with sleep. It's me talking to this little little character monkey, explaining all the different kind of aspects of of what it's like to to sleep. Or is it monkey telling me? It's maybe a bit of both. I don't know. Fascinating. Uh, You know, and and you ended up talking about sleep and it's not something that I really think about that much. But as soon as you mentioned the podcast, I thought this has been a huge kind of narrative in my life, the story of sleep. And of course it is in everybody's life, isn't it? Yeah. We all do it. Yeah, we all do it. Yeah. 
Thank you so much, Claire Shaw, for being on my podcast. And I wish you another all the way through the night, peaceful, warm sleep. Oh, thank you. I'll take that, Catherine. Thank you. I've loved talking to you. (laughs) 